only a matter of time. Notes back here. There we go. <clears throat> do 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 Welcome to the Reinventing Education podcast. My name is Rob McLeod and joined by the illustrious Brendan O'Leary, who's making some squirmy faces as my boomy broadcasterish voice kicked in there. How are you, Brendan? I'm okay, Rob. How are you yourself? What are we talking about today, Rob? Teaching and learning philosophies in the mainstream school. So if you're into Spiral Dynamics or Frederick Lelou's work of reinventing organizations, this is the orange meme. And essentially, by the end of this episode, hopefully will help you to see the water that a mainstream educator is swimming in, the things that you just kind of take for granted as the way good education should be. But hopefully, if you've been following along the podcast, you realize that we're presenting this idea that essentially there are three types of school, traditional, mainstream, and progressive, and each of them have their very different ideas about what a good education is. So we're going to dive in deep into the mainstream approach to education and the sort of shared cultural beliefs about what a good education is. Mm. And I like that you came out of the spiral closet there a little bit. That is your background and you are very knowledgeable about it. I know we've kind of shied away from it a little bit with the, with the worry that it will maybe put off people that don't know that. But I think we have tried our best to use your knowledge and my interpretation of that stuff to, to kind of set up these three types of schools, right? The traditional and the mainstream and the progressive. I think those kind of terms resonate well with a lot of people. But what we're trying to do is kind of set out a little bit more what, what they mean, because, you know, those terms by themselves can mean many things to many different people. So one of the things we're doing here is digging in week by week, generally into one aspect. And you'll hear a lot of the same kind of ideas repeated in a slightly different context. And the, the reason why is because at its core, every element of the mainstream school, that orange meme, as you, as you said, every element of the mainstream school kind of gears towards the same uh, kind of goals, the same aims, the same values of opportunity and progress and achievement and goal setting and kind of this idea that by thinking critically about what people do, we can organize things so as to make things more efficient and more effective. You know, you talk a lot about the idea of the water that we swim in, and this is basically the water that most of us are swimming in. And it's only when you stop and take a look around and say, well, actually, you know, if we're always thinking about being effective, what are we not thinking about? And that's, we will try and compare it a little bit to the the strengths of the traditional system and the strengths of the progressive system. But we're trying to give an objective view of the, the, the strengths and weaknesses of the babies in the bathwater of mainstream schools. Yeah. And if I if I could play making a straw man just for a moment, because we really try not to do that here. We try not to oversimplify things. We just try to simplify them to the level of usefulness or utility. But if I was to oversimplify things here, we could say at the end of the day, the mainstream approach to school fundamentally is about increasing student achievement, which 
by and large, gets reduced into the idea of, you know, improving standardized testing or improving overall student marks, student achievement within the school. And when we talk about the water you're swimming in, you know, I've picked up a few books on school leadership recently, trying to get some ideas for myself. And within a few pages, it's essentially like, well, here's how you improve a school's scores. And here's how you do that as a leader. And it's sort of like there's no other option or interpretation of what an optimal school leader is. Now, of course, they're not reducing them down to just some piece in in a machine that's like, the only thing that we're doing here is improving testing scores. Of course, there's heart. Of course, there's, you know, genuine social contact and all these sorts of things. But fundamentally, the definition of a school leader's role is to find ways within the school to improve overall student achievement, which is not wrong. But what we're trying to point out is that's the goal and the core belief of someone who's more or less orienting from this mainstream value or who has been in the mainstream system and has had to kind of comply with that approach to education, even if their heart perhaps is maybe more traditional or more progressive leaning. I think as we get further and further away from the episode 50 that we've been pointing people back towards, I'm noticing that we're starting to feel the need to point that out a little bit more that, yeah, a traditional school and system, and maybe a person that orients from a traditional perspective, sees duty sees security as being more fundamental to schools' success and the people within it. A mainstream person or school would see that achievement. Of course it is. Of course it's about achievement, Rob. And then we say, well, actually a progressive school might say, yes, achievement has its place, but isn't the inclusion of everybody and the bringing yourself and meaning and looking at your social, emotional and holistic well-being, isn't that more important? Well, yes, it is, of course. At at least knowing that there's these three different perspectives and seeing and, and asking yourself as we still consistently in our message back and forth ask ourselves where we stand and what what other people we encounter what they're where they're coming from and how how to best uh, build relationships with people i think that's key that you know being aware that there are these three and there's more but these are the three that we're focusing on and then somewhere in our future maybe 10 years down the line we're trying to uh, we're trying to find a way to bring the best the most meaningful and the most healthy parts of all of these types of school together in a way that best serves the context of individuals. So it gets quite complex. And uh, please feel free to dig back into some of our episodes. We did a great interview, in my opinion, great in the sense that we learned a lot with the, when we talked to Brad Kirshner, we talked to Professor David Labrie. He gave us a really great insight into the workings of a system that is focused on this achievement and it, and its strengths and weaknesses and then please go back to episode 50 and take a you know this is that was our attempt to set out our stall and uh, probably do that again in the not too distant future hopefully but how about rob we dive into teaching and learning philosophies in a mainstream school or classroom so what's fundamental here, what gets put at the center of how the school organizes itself, how the teacher organizes what they are doing in the classroom, what the student is occupied with or focused on during their school experience is the curriculum. There is a curriculum document most likely handed down from either the provincial or federal government, or if it's a private school, perhaps 
through the school itself, there's a curriculum document. And what's in there? Well, both a series of learning goals for sort of each grade or age level, and as well, aims that students need to demonstrate their understanding of. And essentially, the entire school is organized around the idea of measuring a student's progress, measuring the degree of achievement a student has in relationship to that curriculum. Basically says, here are the things you need to do, and then we are going to measure the degree to which you have mastered the things that are in the curriculum. Would you word it any differently, Brendan? No, I think that's key, and I think that's why we get things like standardized tests where to be able to do that, you have to, on some level, abstract the curriculum and make it into at least an attempt at equity or fairness for everybody, because that's core also to the mainstream values, This uh, these enlightenment values, if you will, of you know, equity and fairness or equality. And so that's an attempt there to say, we, we're interested in your progress. We're interested in how far you've come. We're also really, really interested in achieving these goals. And uh, they're kind of a shared set of goals. So we can agree on the framework of this kind of game. And therefore we can play it in an equal and fair way. And this may sound crazy and like we are absolute hippies to even challenge this, but there is in the mainstream approach to there's just kind of an unquestioned belief, I would argue, that student achievement in relationship to the curriculum is good in and of itself. Student achievement is inherently good. And there's certainly a good case to be made for that because your degree of achievement now at whatever part of the school system you're in or whichever section of its continuum you're in, whether it's primary school or secondary or post-secondary, by and large, your student achievement is translated through your grades. And your grades are most likely going to open or close opportunities for you at the next filtering point of the school system. Are you going to get into the college or university you want to get into so that you can access the job that you want to later in life, all these sorts of things? So it is certainly true that your achievement against the curriculum is tied to actual, at least the, the possibilities that are opened to you or closed to you later in life. So certainly this could be seen as rather high stakes, but there is the belief that there's not really anything to be questioned there. There's nothing wrong with that. We need to give students the maximum access to the opportunities that could be available to them. We want everyone to achieve to their absolute maximum. And listening to this, you may think, well, does the traditional school not have a curriculum? No, it most likely has a curriculum, but the, the learning around that curriculum is likely approached differently in two different ways. One is the level of thinking skills that are emphasized. And second, the idea of pacing through the curriculum. So first, let's look at the Bloom's taxonomy. Now, if you're new to the Bloom's taxonomy, this is worth a quick Google. And I'm sorry, we're not going to do a, a full deep dive introduction course right now. We could likely do an hour on the Bloom's taxonomy alone. But the Bloom's taxonomy basically says there are stages of increased complexity in terms of the thinking skills required that you can use to relate to content. So it's a fancy way of saying, essentially, when you're exploring a topic at the lowest level of thinking skills, you just have to remember some stuff. So it's his, let's use history as an example. With history, you just need to remember some dates and who beat who and when did this person arrive there and you know in what year did this happen. You just need to remember this stuff and we'll test you on your remembering. The next step up would be understanding. So can you basically explain the information? It's not just did you remember it? Can you kind of explain 
what went on. And then the next step up from there would be applying. So not just can you remember stuff or understand it, but can you understand it and then use that understanding to actually apply that historical learning to something else? What might an example of application in history look like? You could take a technique that you saw or a strategy from a particular battle, for example, and you could look how that might have been applied to a, a different battle. The Battle of Hastings in Britain is all, always a key point in history. And so, you know, the king was shot in basically his, he, he didn't structure his his forces very well. How could you learn from that? How could you learn for how the attackers placed themselves? And then how could you apply that to another battle or how could you apply that to a simulation? So you're taking something you've learned and you're using it in a different way. This is something that comes in at the mainstream school. The criticism of standardized testing, and we'll get to the bathwater a little bit, is it actually doesn't do that very well. It focuses on understanding, but it, but potentially that's something that does come in in your project-based work and in some of your more collaborative work that starts to emerge in some areas of mainstream schooling. You would absolutely not expect to see that kind of thing in a traditional school, which uh, kind of focuses on something that um, Freire called the banking method, the idea of filling up the empty vessel almost, the teacher comes in and pours the information into the students and they remember it and give it back. Maybe they understand, but mostly it's the remembering, as you said, mainstream education, you, you're expected to understand, be able to explain, and even at its best, take that information, take a mathematical concept from this area apply it somewhere else. Take a take something you learned in art class, maybe some sketching technique and apply it to a different subject. It opens up a whole lot of doors in, into what you can do in education, but makes the assessment and the teaching of it so much more complex. Yeah, exactly. We move from just, can you fill in a blank at remembering and understanding to, can you write about this? Can you articulate? Can you reenact? Can you, you know, display your understanding essentially? And arguably, you know, at the, at, at its best, the mainstream approach also will include the next step in the Bloom's taxonomy, which is analyzing. So this is where you're categorizing information or you know, even deconstructing information, you're linking different ideas together this is where mind mapping or organizing information comes into play, which again is then taking that applying to the next step, which is not just can you remember information? Do you understand it? Can you apply that understanding? But can you actually analyze this? Can you break it apart? Can you make judgments about the topic that you are looking at, which arguably the applying and analyzing is focused on much more in the mainstream approach than it is in the traditional approach, which is going to emphasize understanding and remembering more. Now, red flag should go up here. We're not saying mainstream only does applying and analyzing. We're not saying traditional only does remembering and understanding. But if you had to flip, if you had to put place a bet, you had 10 quid on something, you're probably going to get your money if you bet on the idea that traditional is going to spend most of its time on remembering and understanding and mainstream spends most of its time on applying and analyzing. Yeah. And as we get to progressive, there is a higher set of skills that are evaluation skills and synthesizing multiple ideas together. So that in, in progressive education, arguably in parts of the IB education, they're actually going on further. So we, we've got kind of progress and achievement. We've got these higher level critical thinking skills. And another big area that you would see come in more with mainstream school is the idea of differentiation. 
So we all have our own paths. And as you go through the system and get towards higher education, those paths splinter off into myriad of other opportunities. There's somewhat of an irony in primary school and even secondary school that a system that's about opportunity has everybody more or less doing the same thing. But the point of that is it's actually prepping you for a future where you're ready to take those opportunities. So it's almost like a compromise. And this is another thing the mainstream school system and mainstream society does quite well. It compromises, it negotiates, and it's like, okay, we're going to give basic skills and a little bit of choice just to eight-year-olds and 12-year-olds. But by the time you get to 18 or 22 and you're doing a degree or a master's, you've got a huge wide range of potential specialities that you will go into. So it's, it's this weird kind of compromise that um, the progressive schools will critique quite heavily of kicking that that idea down the line. But differentiation, so you have, if for example, secondary school, a math class, uh, you know, 1500 students in my local secondary school in, in England, and, you know, 200 or so in each year group. And that year group will be split into six or seven streams of math. And it, even within those seven streams, the higher end of that class will get a slightly more uh, complex mathematics and more differentiated, more support maybe for the lower end of that class. And so by doing this, they actually take one path. Everybody's going to take a similar credential at the end. In Britain, it's the GCSE or the A-level or similar. Everyone's more or less going to take that GCSE at 16, but you may have gone through seven or eight different differentiated paths and you might get more help from the teacher you might get uh, extra practice you might get more hands-on like manipulatives if you're working with money you might get coins to work with whereas somebody working in a more higher level abstract realm wouldn't use those or need those so differentiation in and of itself is a hugely complex topic I won't, I won't go too far into differentiation, but um, one thing I like in, in PE classes particularly is something called STEPS. And STEPS stands for different ways that you can differentiate. And the, um, the, the S is space. So you can give people more space to work in. And T is time. So you could write some groups might have more than others and, and so on. So this is a huge topic and it really only came to the fore in mainstream. And arguably it's still developing. It, even when we were back at school, Rob, I don't know your experience of differentiation, but it was relatively limited for me. Maybe we had four or five groupings of kids, but everyone in that class more or less did the same. Whereas these days, I think in Britain, even within each of those sets of, of children, there would be three or four levels of differentiation, as in they would do slightly different variants on that, on those tasks. And um, I mean, that's all fitting in this idea of progress is just as important as achievement and giving people opportunities and more chances to make that progress. This isn't like, okay, you're going to get this one time and if you blow it, it's gone. The mainstream system doesn't work that way, which again is the irony of high stakes standardized tests that do say that. So there's there's definitely some ironies built into the into the system, but at its core, it's like everybody can, everyone can achieve, everyone can make progress. And we're going to give you as many different strategies to do that. We talk about the coach model in mainstream education versus the master and apprentice in traditional schools. So the coach versus the person being coached, uh, an athlete 
is a good analogy. The Everyone's going to run the 100 meters, but the amount of strategies that the coach can use to get the athlete ready for that race, that is open to the creativity and the, the hard work of the coach themselves. Yeah, and you might ask, why are we differentiating? It, it kind of makes sense. And what I would say trickles back to the idea of differentiating is an efficient and effective way to maximize student progress. And the alternative, you could look back to traditional school and you could more or less see the idea of whole class tasks. The idea that the whole class is doing roughly the same level of work and everyone's doing the same thing. Whereas in a mainstream class, we're going to switch to this idea of, no, you're going to see ability groupings. So I think reading is a really good example for this. Some students are still just putting together the letter sounds and reading three, four letter words. Some of them are reading Harry Potter in the same class. And it's like, well, we're not going to hold back those Harry Potter kids to say, oh, in grade one, we just do this level of reading. And, you know, we're not going to ignore those kids who are still putting together the letter sounds and go, no, no, you were already supposed to know that. We're moving on to these books that are too difficult for you. We're going to drag you along. That's not effective. It's not efficient. And it minimizes the amount of progress you can make. So the mainstream approach is, you know what? We're going to differentiate. We're going to say here is our year one target level goal. These are the goals everyone's aiming for. Some people already passed it. We're not going to hold you back. We're going to look to next year's goals. So the year after that or the year after that, we're going to provide you that work. But we've ticked the box to make sure you've at least hit the benchmark for progress we expect to see from you this year. And those who aren't at that benchmark of progress yet, like a coach, we're going to adapt what we do for you to maximize your progress. Maybe you still don't hit this year's benchmark for progress that we want to see, but we're going to maximize the progress you do make, even if it still falls short of our overall goal. So I think that's the idea. We're looking at progress and achievement and differentiation is one of the, the key strategies for achieving that. Because again, with this mainstream view, we're looking to maximize student achievement, which we're seeing as maximizing progress, which if you really, really, really zoom out is connected to the belief that, you know, we're trying to get the best out of everyone so that when they enter our society, they're arriving with a lot of merit, a lot of skills, a lot of knowledge, and are performing at their best for when they're ready to enter into society. So we've already started to get into some of these positives, but Brendan, you're giving me the signal you'd like to add something before we shift here. I think a really key and cool idea that outside of education you may not have come across is this idea called the zone of proximal development, which is Vygotsky was a um, psychologist, and he came up with this idea that essentially the best way this has been you know this is a century old now so this has been well well tested for research the best way for people to progress is to find that space that's just a step beyond where you currently are and then you get a more knowledgeable other as they call them will then guide you and coach you and help you to get to that next step a place you couldn't get to by yourself and arguably this is being questioned heavily by progressive education. But in the mainstream, it, this is fundamental to the idea that we can get you to the next step by giving you this more supported differentiation. I think it's it's key to a lot of what goes on in mainstream schools. And if we make one more analogy out of school, connecting Vygotsky and the zone of proximal development, you go to the gym, you pick up weights, there's a certain range of weights that are within your zone of proximal development that you're going to get benefit from. If you walk over and pick up the one pound weight and, you know, barbell curl it 
10 times, you're not going to get any real benefit out of it. You go over and grab the thousand kilogram, you know, squat rack weight and try and do that. You're not even going to get one rep in and you're not going to get any benefit from it. But, you know, you take a little bit of time, tune into it and find out, oh, actually right now, 16 kilograms is, you know, the one that I need to be using. And, you know, next week, maybe I try 17 and two weeks from now, I try the 18 kilogram. If you work from there, you're in that zone of proximal development. You're in the zone where it's enough challenge, but enough challenge where you're growing, developing, getting stronger, etc. So we've already started to jump back. We've compared mainstream already a few times to traditional. But what are some of the babies, the good things that have come from this mainstream approach to education, Brennan? Yes, we note that the scientific method emerged from this kind of model of thinking. So again, what we say, Enlightenment values, post-Renaissance values were objectivity and this notion that if you have a hypothesis and you test it, then this is the most solid way to gain facts, a repeatable kind of method. Much of the mainstream schooling is based on this idea that we teach in a way that maybe we have a lot of options in how we teach, but what's important is how do we measure the progress of students? And assessment is still relatively new in schools in going beyond just the test. So traditional schools still had a form of assessment, but it was very much usually a test, sometimes uh, a simple test of memorization. And again, this is one of those things where you can critique the high stakes, multiple choice testing that the mainstream school does have. We'll come to that later. But being objective in your measurement is a real baby, a real benefit of the mainstream school. They don't just go with their gut. They say, let's find evidence. Let's moderate or bring a bunch of people together and see if we can agree that this is actually the best score and this is a valid assessment. So that's really key. Alongside that, we've talked about this idea of the teacher becoming more of an engineer at this model. So in the mainstream school, a teacher might be expected to go right into the curriculum document and, and, and know that, know those elements well so they can pick out multiple objectives and ideas and criteria. They can take the ones that are most suitable for their class. They can adapt and they can build them together into units of multiple lessons that actually teach those concepts really well in a variety of different ways. And this is quite different to a more traditional teacher who may take the textbook and work through the textbook. Again, we don't want to straw man. We don't want to say that traditional teachers paid no attention to the order of their lessons or how they were planned. But there's a greater level of complexity that comes in at the mainstream school. Just the idea that you might need three or four different related activities for different children in your class, and you might need to support those in different ways. That means that you have to have a, a, a more flexible working knowledge of the parts that make up this unit. Uh, again, we talked about moving up Bloom's taxonomy away from just remembering and into understanding and then beyond understanding into uh, applying knowledge in different places and in different contexts and analyzing things, breaking them down, comparing them, and seeing really how they work. So the emergence of a more critical type of thinking, which does fit in with a bigger mindset in mainstream school and mainstream society that actually were not beholden to an 
a a king or a feudal power that we should answer unquestionably. We should actually question our leaders. And this is where this democratic kind of ideal comes from as well. One of the aims of school is to provide a way for social mobility, a meritocracy. If you study hard in school, if you get your credentials, if you get the information and the knowledge from those studies, you can then move yourself up. You can get a better job. You can move into a different strata of society. No longer are you destined to be in the same social place as you were when you were born or your parents. You have the opportunity to move again. One might question whether that still exists in 2021, but that is fundamental to the mainstream mentality. Anything to add to that, Rob? Yeah, you addressed the idea of teachers as objective assessors. And the one thing I'd want to add, just again, comparing it back to the traditional, you mentioned perhaps traditional teachers may often be given a little bit more leeway or freedom to kind of trust their gut or their overall holistic assessment of student work. But I think one of the things that allows for more complexity is when we have things like assessment tools whether that's rubrics or checklists or whatever the things are, the idea is you could swap out any teacher. And in theory, no matter which person is doing the assessing, they've got the same tools, the same meter sticks, if you will, the same measuring tapes that they should arrive at the same assessment score or achievement or final mark with any piece of student work. And you, you mentioned that with the idea of, um, you know, peer moderated marking, get a group of people together and just check that our measurements we're measuring in the same kinds of way. But I think that's a really big deal because it moves us from the idea of that traditional approach where when the door closes, the teacher is the expert in the room and their say on a final mark is the be all and end all. With the mainstream approach, we want to make our marking approach transparent and we want a student to understand why they got the mark that they got in all of its complexity. We want a parent to understand exactly why the student got the mark that they got. And we need the teacher to be transparent and say, you know, I didn't do some Wizard of Oz trick here where I took your work behind the curtain and it showed back up with a 76% on it and a couple small comments in the corners. I'm showing you the tool that I used to objectively mark your work. And I think that's a really big step forward in terms of education, in terms of transparency, in terms of understanding how to assess things, which then gets built on in the next approach to school of progressive education, which then takes that and says, oh, we can negotiate what's in here. So I just wanted to put that piece in there, the idea of the importance of the transparency and the objectivity and that the, you know, you and I, we've kind of talked about this. You could, and again, we're straw menning here a little bit, but, you know, you ask a traditional teacher, hey, how tall is that thing? I trust your judgment. You're an expert on on height. You go, ah, I think that water tower is about 80 meters high. You go, yeah, that, that probably makes sense. You could liken that to giving someone 80% on an essay, but then someone actually goes over with the proper actual measuring tool. Oh, it's actually 93. Like you weren't way off, but it's actually 93 exactly. And you go, oh yeah, actually, if we sat down with this rubric that shows transparently how we were marking the student essay, actually, we've realized they've achieved 93% of the learning goal that we had in the curriculum for them. That really matters because we actually have quite distinct lines in these credentials. So an A grade is 90 and a B grade is 80. Therefore, if you measure accurately in this example, the child actually got an A, but would have got a B on that test. And when you ratchet up 
the pressure into standardized tests. There were university places are based on this and teachers' salaries are based on this and you make it a one chance, which goes against everything. <laughs> Not everything, but it goes against a lot of what the mainstream kind of believes in. It's important that we measure accurately if we're going to be hyper-specific about grades and marks and, and the difference between a 78 and an 81 is actually the difference between you going to university or me getting a bump in my salary next year. We can no longer afford really to be just judging it from the gut. We, we've built a system that requires us to measure accurately and therefore we must measure accurately. Now we can get into the idea, the, the drawbacks of attempting to measure something that actually isn't that measurable, but uh, that will come up when we move to the bathwater element real soon. AKA right now. And I'd like to throw this back to you because you're the Illich guy. I don't, I don't pretend to be as well-versed in his world, but he talks about the myths of school. What are the myths of school, Brandon? How does that connect back to some of the bathwaters or drawbacks of this mainstream teaching philosophy? I am by no means an expert, but I, I am a fan of some of the work of even Illich, who he was a, a priest that began by questioning the church. And then once he'd questioned that enough, he moved over to education, questioned schools, and then just by the end of his life, questioned the very notion of education. But um, he's lumped in very much with a lot of the progressive uh, educators of the mid-20th century. One of the myths was uh, there's a myth within mainstream schools that everything can be measured. We all know that not everything can be measured and some things are much easier to measure than others. And unfortunately, one of the drawbacks of the standardized testing regime is that we only measure the things that are relatively easy to measure. We talked about the Bloom's taxonomy. The further you go up, the harder it is to measure. Therefore, if you are looking for an efficient and effective way to measure, you're going to measure remembering with a little bit of understanding. The irony is that we're not actually measuring the things we want to give the students the opportunity to do. It's just that one element of efficiency is working against effectiveness. And this is a, this is a, a push and pull. This is a tension inside the mainstream system. And I would say that when that tension or that push and pull reaches its extremes in the mainstream approach, it always falls to the side of efficiency over effectiveness. So what is more efficient? wins out over what is more effective. And mm. if you're going to test 7 million children in your country this year, the more effective, or sorry, the more efficient approach to measuring 7 million people's test results is certainly going to win out over the far less efficient, but far more effective approaches that could be out there. We get into the naughty, the naughty area of conflicting beliefs. And when, so the mainstream belief is also good enough is good enough. Good enough is where is okay for today because we're going to improve it. Uh, the irony there is we don't change that system of efficient testing because it's good enough. And there'll be some some winners and losers of this, but enough people get enough out of it for it to be not kind of changed. And there's 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 there isn't another suggestion yet that has managed to take over that space. And that's what progressive education is arguing. They have some of the solutions. I won't go into too many more of the myths, but one another one he talked about is that learning only happens at school. So, you know, traditionally indigenous learning would happen within the community and it would be based on the natural progression very much of a child growing and learning the ways of their society. Uh, but 
the the drawback of that is it's somewhat haphazard some people will get way more than others some will have a so in the interest of fairness and equity and 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 building a workforce and 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 so on we want everyone to have these opportunities the traditional um, educator would see that you're actually stepping away arguably traditional school as we say it had already stepped well away from that system so we're even looking way way further back into the into you know pre-feudal kind of ages where education was inseparable from life there's a lot to that but but that's a criticism that you know we get to the point where only school can give you credentials only school is where learning happens. Everything that happens outside, hey, that's a bonus maybe, as long as it doesn't get in the way of this efficient and effective schooling. So there's a few, there's a few more kind of um, of myths and maybe we, we bring them up at some point, but um, they all essentially try to unpack the idea that um, we got ourselves to a place where state run or government overseen education for all got us to a necessary place, arguably, from where we were several hundred years ago, but it's kind of outstayed its welcome for most people in terms of meaning. And again, that's where progressive education says, hey, what's meaning? Come over here. We'll show you how you get meaning back in, in, in your, your life. And, and uh, But again, there's, as with everything, you gain and you lose by moving into to that other paradigm. The mainstream teacher at best is finding a way to take those curriculum objectives and make them meaningful or help the student to find ways in which this learning is meaningful for them. However, one criticism can be that at the end of the day, the students still didn't really have choice around what they spent a huge chunk of their childhood and adolescence engaged with. Why did you need to learn about this? Well, it's in the curriculum. And yes, your teacher may have done everything to try to make connections for you, but we're starting from something outside your experience and trying to work it back into your life, whereas a more progressive approach would look at the child's life as they are now and say, what is most important? What is most relevant? What is most meaningful? What's actually, what are some of the actual things that are most vital to your zones of proximal development now in a variety of capacities in your life? And let's emphasize those things as opposed to, oh, hey, this is the stuff you need to tick the boxes on to pass through our education system. Yeah, there's an external system that maybe doesn't see you necessarily as an individual, but it is the dominant system. And you can still retain your individuality to some degree, but you have to you have to commit to that system if you want to learn that information and therefore get that credential and therefore be in a better position to move up the social ladder or get a job. And, and if David Labrise went into this in, in, in real depth and really highlighted for me just how ingrained that really is in, in our society, especially as you get up into secondary and higher education. Um, I guess the other thing that I've seen criticized from actually traditional, but very much from progressive is that your measurements are not actually very objective. This kind of harks back to this idea of Illich's myth of not everything can be measured, but hey, you're just lying to yourself. That this is You're measuring the meaningful things. You're measuring it in an actual way that makes sense. And, um, you know, so... so give give uh, me an uh, example. Give me an example where a mainstream educator might think, oh, I'm being objective here with my measurements, but you could take the air out of that. Well, anything that has a creative element, we talk 
talked a lot about assessing art. And I, I actually did a degree in art, but I did not pass my art exam at 16. And mostly because at 16, it was heavily focused on assessing basic skills, cross-hatching, shading, perspective, and so on, which I was okay at, but was not an area I was interested in the slightest and therefore did not put much effort and did not pass that test. Once I got into something that had a bit more choice and a bit more freedom, I was able to do this. My teachers at 16 would have argued, we are objectively measuring your art skills. How does that make sense if two years later, I am using massively different criteria and being quote unquote successful in in art? Of course, you can argue art is very subjective, but can you tell me anything that gets beyond a basic stage that doesn't become subjective? Everything is subjective once you've gone beyond absolute fundamental facts. And so every essay, every project has a great degree of subjectivity in it. And therefore, unless you try and remove all subjectivity from the task itself, and this is the morass that we kind of get into in assessment sometimes, let's make the assessment task so objective <laughs> that we can definitely measure it, but it no longer actually tells us anything about the student because there's no longer any opportunity for them to express themselves. Going from a spelling test, absolutely, I will give you a pure objectivity. I'll give you 10 words, I will mark it. But surely a project where I design a house is going to show you far more about my ideas and where I am. And again, we're getting back to Bloom's taxonomy. But um, you, you know, the progressive educator who says, sure, you're objective when you're measuring the multiplication test, but really how much is that telling you? And as soon as you move away from that very, very objective fact-based stuff, you're no longer actually being objective. You're being subjective and the best you can do is a best fit, but then you're being super specific with the scores. 73%, 83%, 74%. It's like, hold on, that essay talking about Shakespeare's sonnet? How did you know that was 73% and not 72%? It's and like 73% of what? And the best answer I have is you've achieved 73% of the mastery we ask or demand of you in relationship to this curriculum objective. We're saying you did your work, we measured, you know, we changed this to just jumping up the wall. You jumped and you managed to get up 73 centimeters up the wall. You wrote your essay and you got 73% of a possible 100% in relationship to this curriculum learning objective. That's what that percent is. And you're certainly hitting the nail on the head of the difficulties of measuring and arguing that something's not objective. And if at the end of the day, we boil everything down to a percent that goes on a report card or a number, you got a two or you got a, a B or whatever it is. If at the end of the day, everything in the mainstream approach gets boiled down to a report card mark. What that does not take into account is how multiple schools within a district, multiple schools within a state or province, or multiple schools across the country will have done wildly different activities in relationship to that learning goal. Teachers will have created completely different assessments. Teachers will have marked them completely differently. Students will have been asked to demonstrate their learning in radically different ways. And yet we're pretending to say that a 73 in this school that did totally 
different work and was assessed completely differently would be exactly the same as a 73% in this other school that focused on completely different things and did completely different work was assessed completely differently to meet that same curriculum objective. And if you really think that's true, that just sounds ridiculous to me. But if we kind of accept it, we can keep this thing going more or less. But to me, when you boil it down to that part, it just seems absolutely absurd that anyone would think that a 73 in this school and a 73 in that school, which were not arrived to at all in any of the same ways, the idea that those are equivalents of each other is just madness to me. And again, going back to the progressive educators would say the fallout of that is not, there's an emotional fallout. These are people's lives who are getting these scores and it depends on where you go and what you do. These are life-changing figures and numbers in so many different ways. So, you know, yeah, do I put this much sugar in my tea? Do I put this much sugar? Like that's a ballpark and it's like, and that's that's my subjective choice and whatever we can talk about it. But it's like, no, well, actually you're, you're again, ratcheting up the system. So these numbers are massively important. And then the myth is that we're measuring them really well. And we're the only people that can measure them. And you got to buy into all those myths to think that this is the way forward. Um, but again, it's good enough for enough people. And it'll see us through for the next century or so until we move into a place where we've got some better solutions. That's kind of obviously this is not me <laughs> saying this. This is this is my again somewhat convoluted interpretation of mainstream education's justification for the continuation of this paradigm. Yeah, and what we're pointing out in our criticism here is this is not effective. This is not the most effective way. If you're going to go about this pursuit of measuring merit measuring achievement, measuring progress. This is by no means the most effective way to do that, but it is probably almost the most efficient and therefore good enough. And one thing I would say, as we are sounding now like some hippie green people, and, and I have to say, my I believe heavily in that progressive education has a lot to offer. I do also believe that mainstream at its best can be a really effective way for someone to learn. If I want to learn some, let's say, an element of economics or something to do with history, there are elements and strategies within the mainstream that can be really effective and, and get me to achieve in ways that the traditional and progressive arguably would not. And when we get to the progressive school, we will be just as harsh on the criticisms of their drawbacks. But in this case, particularly, I think the progressive um, school has a lot of good points to make. And we all know this. If you're, if you're listening to this and you have any stake in education, you have had this discussion almost certainly. And you've read so many articles. But what would it take to move us to the next stage? That is a big question. And if I'm not mistaken, we may be speaking to someone very soon that might be able to give us some suggestions in that area. You're talking about Armin? I am. I threw a link out to you, a potential link. And you don't need to take it, Rob, if you've more to say on this topic. Great. But if not, tell us more about Armin. Yeah. Armin Sieber from the Integralist Hagashula, Winterthur, Switzerland. One of our first interviews and a guy that Brendan and I hold in high regard with respect to how he is managing to navigate how to deal with these different value systems within education. Highly recommend going back and listening to his interview if you haven't listened to it. I think it's 
around episode seven, eight, nine, somewhere in there. And uh, he and I recently connected at the European Integral Conference, and he shared a document with both Brennan and I, which is basically his view from 10 years in the future looking back and him bringing a positive, optimistic view that there's been a lot of change in both society and the approaches to education. And uh, we're going to dive into that document and uh, yeah, give him a chance to explain beyond that one page that he had written, where where does he see these changes stemming from currently and uh, some of his ideas behind that. So looking forward to that. Arguably of all the people we've spoken to, he is the closest to being able to articulate that uh, integral or developmental stage that we say is is beyond the progressive, the one that does seek to bring together the most relevant and applicable aspects of traditional mainstream and progressive. So I am highly excited to talk to Armin, whether or not he brings his cello, that is his choice, but I'm very interested in hearing to what he has to say. Perhaps we could demonstrate his understanding of his content by applying it via cello concerto to us mm. in the interview. But how would we assess such a thing, Rob? Good point. Our Sounds next good. exploration along this line of thinking is to, now that we've do- dove, doven, doven, divved, deep, divved. Now that we've divided deep into the the beliefs about education from the mainstream perspective, we're going to see how that spills over into the class culture. So what is the actual culture like between students, between students and teachers and anyone else in the room, and also looking at the classroom layout. So if you walk into a mainstream classroom or learning space, what hallmarks of a mainstream approach are reinforced by the layout and design and reinforced by the class culture as as well. But I believe that will be after our summer break. So I think we're going to talk one more time to Malcolm. We're going to have a chat with Armin. And if we're lucky, we might even get to see a presentation that Rob did just a few months ago that I described as a golden bullet of educational information in the newspaper I write in my own mind. <laughs> and so uh, we shall see you. Our next uh, deep dive, our next uh, one of these will be six to eight weeks hence. But we hope you have a good summer and uh, listen to the next few eps. And um, don't be afraid to get in touch. How would someone do such a thing, Robert? Don't use Facebook. Use email, old-fashioned email, reinventingeducationpodcast at gmail.com. All one big giant word. No underscores, no periods, nothing. No funny business like that. We're straight to the point. We're effective and efficient. Reinventingeducationpodcast at gmail.com. We do post on the Twitter, and uh, we're happy to hear from you. So uh, send us a message. Tell us where we're right and where we're wrong, because we love that. Bye, Rob. Thanks, Brennan.